In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters and friends. When we come to the end of Acts chapter 4, we find that the followers of Jesus are showing remarkable care of one another. No one among them had any lack. Everyone who had possession or lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to the feet of the apostles for distribution to whoever had need. It was all being done voluntarily by the prompting of the Holy Spirit through the love of Jesus Christ for one another. There was one man in particular who stood out in this. His name was Joseph, but everyone called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a Levite from a prosperous country, and he sold some property that he had brought the money to the apostles and laid it at their feet. It must have made a great impact on everyone and true to his name. It seems that it encouraged others to do the same. It would have been a very high time of joy within the church. Everyone felt the call of the Holy Spirit to give and to serve sacrificially. But as it so often happens, whenever there's a genuine work of the Holy Spirit, the devil tries to spoil it all by bringing in his counterfeit influences, motivating people to act hypocritically in order to gain the praises of men. And that's when it is that we are introduced to the tragic story of Ananias and Sapphira. Luke tells us in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. It's very important for us to understand that there was no wrong whatsoever in keeping back a portion of the proceeds. They were under, under no compulsion to sell their property. It was all a completely voluntary matter. And neither were they under any compulsion to bring the whole amount to the apostles. It was completely theirs to do with as they wished. The sinfulness of their action was found in that they brought a portion of the sale but were making it appear before the others that they were bringing it all. They wanted to subtly show how generous they were than they really were. So they secretly had a plan. They were hoping that they would look great in front of all the others and still have money left over for themselves. Our Lord not only knows what's in our hand, 
when we give, but also what's in our hearts while we are giving it. And just as surely as he knows how a poor widow gave a small amount with a heart of sacrificial devotion, he also knows when someone gives a much larger amount with a heart of hypocrisy and deceit. Apparently, only Ananias was there that day to bring in this portion of seal. And I imagine that no one who saw it would have thought anything wrong in it. But it must be the Holy Spirit who sees and knows all that is in our hearts, spoke to Apostle Peter about it. And after Ananias laid the gifts at his feet, Peter spoke up. Verse 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the afforded land. Didn't it belong to you before it was so? And after it was so, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Though it was true that Satan had filled Ananias' heart, to do it. It was nevertheless Ananias himself that was culpable for allowing it to happen and for daring to think that he could lie to the majestic, holy, all-knowing spirit of the living God. When Ananias heard this, verse 5 tells us, he fell down and died. It appears what Ananias died instantly, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Verse 6, Then some young men came, came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. And verse 7 continued, About three hours later his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? This was her chance, wasn't it? She could have repented. She could have told the truth. But instead, she carried the lie forward. She said in verse 8, Yes, that is the price. We know that she continued her partnership in her husband's lies. Because of what we find in verses 9 and 10, Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who bury your husband are at the door, and they will carry you too, uh, you out also. All the all that moment at that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. 
verse 11 tells us, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. At first sight, the death of Ananias and Sapphira do not seem to fit with the narrative just before the text and after it. Why does Luke interrupt this, his account with this depressing story? What Luke trying to tell us is, if Barnabas was moved by the Holy Spirit to do what he did, and for that he won much praise and favor from God and man, Ananias had done the opposite. Moved by a different spirit, an unholy spirit, he received no praise, but only severe punishment. If Satan cannot destroy the church from the outer, he will attempt to destroy it from within. If Luke writes the book of Acts in order to record for us the work of, of God, the Holy Spirit among the community of believers, he also wants to inform us of a different spirit which is also at work in the world and in the church. Our text serves as a warning for us today. The first century Christian church was not a perfect community and neither are we. There are never been a time when God's people were perfect. We need to be on guard against the work of the unholy spirit. Well, follows on the story of Ananias and Sapphira, verses 12 to 16 show the church recovering from the frightening incident, reporting both the atmosphere in the church and the surrounding community. The early church experienced the Lord's power through the many miracles performed by the apostles. And through powerful weakness and the resulting powerful conversions of the sinners. Those God's discipline caused great fear to come upon all who heard of his dead deaths. That fear actually strengthened the church. Those who would have been tempted to do the same thing in being half-hearted in following Christ while seeking prestige for themselves shied away from the believers. No hypocrites dare to join them for fear of being struck dead, while those that were serious about following Christ flocked into the church. The Lord was adding many more to the church. Verse 14 tells us that multitudes of men and women were constantly being added to the church. Luke could not Luke could no longer keep account of how many had become followers of Jesus Christ. 
Their influence was beginning to spread beyond Jerusalem as those in surrounding towns came there because of the power of the Spirit working through them. Verse 16. The high priest, along with all his fellow Sadducees, are quite upset about the work and preaching of the apostles. Remember that they are not only the Sadducees, the theological liberals of the time that reject the supernatural, but under the control of the whole high priest, they also a very lucrative business in the temple. One of the reasons they hated Jesus so much was, they, was that he disrupted the business when he drove out the money changers and vendors that had set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. That was supposed to be an area for anyone from any nation to come and pray to the Lord God. But they had made it marketplace. They were still very concerned about anything cutting into either their power and business. The activities and message of the apostle threatened both. Our text says in verse 17, then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousies. In Greek, the word here for jealous also has a sense of being mad or indignant. This time, they arrest all the apostles instead of just Peter and John. That's verse 18. This was done in the same manner as before by laying their hands upon them and then putting them in jail. Liu adds the description here that it was a public jail, which just adds to the idea that they were trying to make a public spectacle of the apostles and embarrass them by the arrest. But God has his own plans, regardless of what plans men may make. And his plan always wins, praise the Lord. In, his, in this case, the Lord did not want his apostle to remain in jail. The Lord sent an angel who opened the gate for them, brought them out and gave them the Lord's instruction. They were to go back to the temple and continue preaching Jesus Christ. That's verses 19 and 20. Verse 21 tells us, The apostles were faithful to the instructions. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people just the way they have been doing since the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Verse 21 goes on to tell us what was happening with the high priest. The high priest is completely unaware that the apostles are back in the temple teaching. He and all those with him 
which would be other Sadducees and those from his family arrive at the council hall. They call for the Sanhedrins and the elders of the people to meet. In preparation for the meeting, he also sent orders to the prison's house to have the apostles brought. However, the apostles were no longer there. Verses 22 to 23. As can be imagined, this news would have come as quite a shock. Verse 24. Now you must remember that the Sadducees do not know that an angel released the apostles, and they would have rejected that story even if they had been told so, because they did not believe in angels. As far as they could tell, there was some sort of intrigue going on by someone with enough power to release the apostles and have all the gods as part of the conspiracy. It is right at this time, while they are so confused about how the apostle could have gotten out of jail without anyone willing to reveal what happened, when another man comes into the Sanhedrin and says, Look, the man you put in jail are standing in the temple course teaching the people. Verse 25. At least the mystery of where they had gone was solved. But this news could only have made them even more perplexed. Most people who escape from jail flee to some place where they will not be caught and return to jail. Not only did the apostles not flee, they had boldly gone back to the very place they were arrested and were doing the very same thing for which they were arrested. What else was going on that they did not know about that would cause this man to be so bold to do this? They still had to deal with the apostles. So they have them rearrested. However, the events of that morning lead them to be cautious and do it in a different manner this time. Verse 26. This time, they are afraid. The people hold the apostle in high regard. If the apostle had resisted at all, the people would have risen up to defend them and might have even stoned the captain and his guard. But the apostles do not resist the rearrest. They have every reason to cooperate. Because if God could release them one time, He could release them another time just as easily. They are simply doing their best to obey God and letting Him take care of the consequences. That is all God asks us to do. Obey Him and trust Him to take care of the consequences. 
His command was for them to return to the temple and continue teaching. This is an interesting juxtaposition. It is not the ones being arrested that are afraid, but those who are doing the arresting. The closer you walk with God, the less reason there is to have any fear. Once again, the apostles are in custody and brought into the Sanhedrin for questioning. Though the question in verse 28 is more of an accusation than a question. Verse 28, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Well, the defense of the apostles is direct and succinct, but it is also a message of hope for the guilty. The other apostles join in making the same reply that Peter and John had made when they were arrested a short time earlier. When it comes to choosing whom to obey, there really is no question. God must be obeyed rather than man. Verse 29. They also did not shy away from any of the accusations of the high priest. They state very directly that the Sanhedrin was responsible for Jesus' death with an emphasis on the fact that they had hung him on a cross. Verse 30. The apostles not only charged the Sanhedrin with the murder of Jesus, but also with seeking to have him cursed by God by the method of their murder. That is why it is very important to also note that they make this very serious charge against the high priest and the elders of Israel as secondary to the emphasis upon what God had done to Jesus. Prior to this charge, the apostles state that the God of our ancestors raised Jesus, verse 31. By using the phrase, the God of our ancestors, they are identifying themselves with the Sanhedrin that they have a common heritage. And that God, and that the God of that common heritage is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had raised Jesus from the dead. Immediately after their charge against the Sanhedrins, they emphasized that this same God had exhorted Jesus to his right hand, which is the seat of power and authority as a prince and a savior. If they had stopped there, 
then their message to the Sanhedrin would have been one of the exaltation of Jesus, who they were guilty of killing. It would have been a message of condemnation with a hope. But they did not stop there. They went on to give hope in Jesus Christ even to those that had put him to death. It's the end of verse 31 that God had done this, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. There was hope given even to this evil high priest and these elders for the murder of Jesus. However, they would have to repent. This is a shorter, shortened version of what Peter has said in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 26, that their repentance would open the door for the restoration of Israel and the return of the Messiah as had been foretold by the prophets from the ancient time. The apostles concluded their defense by not only declaring that they were witnesses of these things concerning Jesus Christ, but that the Holy Spirit was also a witness of them and God would grant the Holy Spirit to those that would obey him. Verse 32. The ball was now back in the court of the Sanhedrin. How would they respond to the truth? Verses 33 to 40 tell us that their reactions was a mixture of hatred and indifference. First, the, Sadd the Sadducees. Verse 33 tells about those with the most negative response. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Seeing they were under Romans' law and did not have the right to carry out the death penalty on their own, they could not carry out their desire right then but they were immediately thinking of ways in which they could bring them about their death. That is what they have done with Jesus. Perhaps they would, that perhaps they, they could do the same with Jesus' followers. It is safe to assume that the most of these that were so furious this time were of the sects of the Sanhedrins, or so, sorry, of the Sadducees. Since they were the ones most affected by the apostles' teaching, that is, was completely contrary to their rejection of the supernatural. Next is Gamaliel's advice. In verses 34 to 39, we met a Pharisees, a well-respected rabbi named Gamaliel. We will find in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, that Gamaliel was the one that had been Paul's mentor. 
Gamaliel had the apostle put outside while he presented his arguments against being hasty and rash in condemning them. As a Pharisee, he believed God was in control of the events that happened. His argument boiled down to the idea that if the apostles were not from God, then whatever movement they were starting would eventually come to nothing of consequence. He cites two examples as proof. Gamaliel also warned that if the apostles were from God, then they would be not be able to destroy them, for they would be fighting against God. They should wait and see what happens. Verses 38 to 39. So, in verse 40, we find that Gamaliel's advice is used on the apostles' behalf to quieten down the more impetuous members of the Sanhedrin. Instead of killing them, they just vented their anger by having the apostles flog. While the wounds from the flogging were meant to be marks of shame, that would further humble the transgressor and keep them from repeating the offense, the opposite was true for the apostles. Verse 47, sorry, 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. This also shows the submissions of the apostles to the Lord. They rejoiced despite the pain and the injustice. They took comfort in Jesus' word concerning persecution. And so they rejoiced to suffer like the prophets and the Lord who had suffered before them. They considered themselves blessed and could also be sure that their rewards in heaven would be great. In addition, the frogging did not deter them in obeying Jesus' command. Note that they went right back to the temple to teach and preach Jesus as Christ on a daily basis, despising the flogging and the threats. Verse 42, the Sanhedrin was not able to stop them. They also did this from house to house, which shows that they were also active in more personal ministry in addition to their ministry to the masses. Now that we have walked through the text to learn it, Let's allow the text to walk through us so we can leave it out. First, Ananias and Sapphira. The story of Ananias and Sapphira reveals something that we all struggle with. We fundamentally, we fundamentally miss out 
on what God wants from us. We think that God wants our stuff more than He wants us. Or we think that God will love us more if we give Him more. Or we think that the love that God has for us will increase depending on what other Christians think of us. As a matter of fact, God cares more about the heart behind your offering, praise, money, serving, then He cares about the offering itself. God wants your heart in worship. He wants you to love Him and connect with Him and to have joy in knowing Him. And so church, we will catch fire only when we weed out the hypocrisy in our own life and offer our hearts wholly to God. That's what a spirit-filled church looks like. Let us God to make us into a church that trusts the Spirit of God and offers our heart to Him. <clears throat> Secondly, persecution. Persevere when persecution comes. It's really not a question of if the persecution will come. It's when it comes. Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, not to be surprised when suffering shows up. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated you, me first. If you belong to the world, it will love you as its own, as it is. You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Are you prepared for persecution? How will you respond when it comes? Will you keep preaching the mystery of the gospel even when things get messy? What would stop you from telling others about Jesus? While it is still rare to have physical persecution against those that proclaim Jesus Christ in this nation, it does still happen on occasion. Would that deter you? I fear that for most professing Australian Christians that it does not even take such a threat but only a disapproving glance to get them to keep quiet about Jesus. That ought not to be, and it does not, does not have to be. We serve the same Jesus that the apostles served, and we can serve him with the same boldness if we will set our minds like they did on Jesus Christ and things 
about instead of the things of this world. That is my challenge to you this morning. Prepare preparation for persecution begins in the presence by learning to live for Jesus Christ in the here and now. When the risks and consequences are relatively small. In that way, you will be ready to glorify Christ when the harder testing comes. Amen. May the Lord bless you.